bring up, or it deals almost very extensively, with the 12 tribes of Israel, a concept that we find continuously throughout scripture. Um, Jacob's 12 tribes, which 12 sons are now sort of the 12 tribes, as we said, minus Levi and Joseph, plus Ephraim and Manasseh. And so when they come to the promised land, these 12 tribes are each given a portion in the promised land, each of these 12 tribes, minus Levi, who's given 48 cities. But each of the 12 tribes is given their own unique portion in the promised land. One tribe at Menashe gets two portions, half on the east bank of the Jordan River, half on the west bank of the Jordan River. But each portion gets its, each tribe gets its own portions. Um, another tribe, Dan, also gets two different portions. They get one portion along the coast, around where Tel Aviv is today. Um, and then they get another portion at the very, very north um, kind of where the northern tip of Israel is today at the very, very north um, of Israel. So, but there are 12 tribes and the tribes have these distinct, the 12 tribes have these distinct identities. And we find throughout um, scripture after the Jews are in the, prom the Israelites as they're called then are in the promised land. Each tribe is unique. Everybody lives within their own tribe. Everybody knows which tribe they are part of. Jews, um, Jews were in, or Israelites were in the promised land for close to 400 years, little about 350 years, when, or a little over 350 years, when God appoints the first king through the prophet Samuel, and the first king, his name is Saul, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, in the days of the Torah already, is one of the smallest of the tribes, and throughout scripture, Benjamin is always one of the smallest tribes. And so Saul is appointed as king. Saul is told by God that God is going to take away his kingdom and give it to a friend of his that is better than him. And Saul has this feeling that that friend of his who God is taking away the kingdom and giving to, taking away his kingdom and giving his kingdom to is going to be his own son-in-law David who was his daughter Michal's husband and um, David was from the tribe of Judah. So indeed... Um, after Saul's death, Saul's son, Ish-bosheth, is appointed as king over most of Israel, except the tribe of Judah, which was by far the largest tribe and took up much of most of southern Israel, did not accept Ish-bosheth as king, but appointed David as their king instead. After seven years, Saul's um, Ish-bosheth's commander-in-chief, whose name was Avner, has a fallout with Ishbosheth, and he decides to switch sides and go over to David. He goes to David, and essentially David now becomes king over all of Israel. David moves his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem, and, um, and Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel. David now rules over all 12 tribes. David, of course, is um, followed by his son, King Solomon, and King Solomon rules over the 12 tribes. And during his reign, King Solomon does not act toward the end of his reign as he should. He has wives who are from non-Jewish backgrounds who he converted but were not sincere. And they are worshipping idols. He also um, built palaces for his wives, um, taking up space that was used for the pilgrims in Jerusalem. And so the prophet Achia Hashiloni comes to him and says, Solomon, you are going to lose half of your kingdom when 10 tribes are going to be pulled away from you. 
But because God loves David so much, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's going to happen after your death. As long as you are alive, it's not going to happen. After your death, though, you are going to lose 10 of the tribes. At the time, the leader of the second largest tribe after Judah, the second largest tribe after Judah was Ephraim. And um, the leader of the tribe of Ephraim was a fellow called Yeravam or Jeroboam. And he was the um, governor of that tribe under the reign of Saul. And Yeravam publicly um, admonishes, admonished King Solomon. King Solomon tore down some of the um, buildings that had been built for the pilgrims <coughs> in order to make way for a house for his wife, who, for his Egyptian princess, who was the daughter of Pharaoh who had converted to Judaism. Jeroboam is very upset about it, and he publicly tells off Solomon. Solomon is furious. Solomon orders Jeroboam caught. And so Jeroboam, or Yeroboam, flees to Egypt. On his way to Egypt, here does he bump into the prophet Achia Hashiloni. And Achia Hashiloni, Jeroboam had been a student of Achia Hashiloni, and Achia Hashiloni grabs Jeroboam's garment, or Yeroboam's garment, and pulls it off him, pulls his cloak off him. They wore cloaks in those days. And he starts ripping up his cloak. He rips it up into 12 pieces. He hands him 10 of those pieces. And he said, God is punishing King Solomon. He's going to take, he's going to, um, take away 10 tribes from him, give them to you. The other two tribes are going to remain with King David's family. And so uh, Jeroboam continues on to Egypt, but then sorry, Achia Shiloni warns him, you, uh, if you go in my ways, if you continue in God's ways and follow God's commandments, then God will make you and your descendants kings for many years. Not forever, because the only eternal house, royal house of, in Israel is the house of David. Not forever, but temporarily you will have kings for many, many years from your family. So anyway, Jeroboam goes down to Egypt. After King Solomon's death, death, Yeravam comes back to Israel. He comes to the city of Shechem where they are anointing, um, where they are, have gathered to appoint Rechavam, King Solomon's son, as king. And all the leaders of Israel, led by, of the tribes, led by Yeravam, come to Rechavam and they say, here's the deal. We will make you king as your, the rightful heir of your father Solomon, but only on one condition. Your father's taxes were too high. You can only be king if you lower the taxes. So he says, give me three days to think about it. So he goes to his father's advisors, and he says, what do you think I should do? And they say, right now, you have no power. You have not even been appointed king. You've got to listen to the people. Later, once you're powerful, you can do what you want. Then he goes to his own friends, and his friends tell him, what do you mean? You're going to let the people tell you what to do before you even started? Be tough with them. Tell them, you think my father's taxes were high? Wait till you see my taxes. And so Rechavam ignores his father's advisors, takes the advice of his friends, and tells, goes back to the leaders and says, do you think my, taxes were, you know, my father's taxes were high? Wait till you see what my taxes are going to be. So Israel says, if so, we do not need you to be our king. And 10 tribes refuse to accept Rechavam as their king. Only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who are both in southern Israel, um, chose Rechavam as their king. 
while 10 tribes chose the former governor of Ephraim, the largest tribe, the second largest tribe after Judah, Yeravam, as their king. Now the land of Israel is split in two, and it is going to remain split for almost 300 years. The land of Israel is going to be split in two. So and this is the year, the year now is 797 BCE. So we're talking about more than 2,800 years ago. The land of Israel is now split in two. There's a northern kingdom whose capital is Shechem, led by Yeravam. And then there's a southern kingdom whose capital is Jerusalem, led by Rechavam. Now, Yeravam has a little bit of a problem. The temple is in Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. Jews are required to travel three times a year, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, for the pilgrimage to the Holy Temple. Three times a year, they're going to, his whole country is going to go to his enemy, southern Israel, or Judah. And he can't go. He's going to be in trouble if he goes. So he thought, they'll all go there. Sooner or later, they'll accept Rechavam as king, and I will lose my position. So he decides he has to make himself a new temple. He's going to not just build one temple, he builds two temples. One in a town called Bethel in central Israel, and one in a town called Dan in northern Israel. He builds two temples. Then once he's building his own temple, he decides that he's going to create his own. He doesn't have the Ark of the Covenant. He's got to create something else. So he remembers, everybody, he remembers how they made a golden calf when they left Egypt. And he says, you know what, I'll make a golden calf at the center of my temple, and he makes two golden calves, one at each temple. Then he goes a little further. This is still, remember, Judaism, but this is already uh, his own version of Judaism. Then he had this one beef on Judaism that really always bothered him, that the month of the seventh month of the month of Tishrei has way too many holidays. Um, there's Rosh Hashanah, and then 10 days later, Yom Kippur, and then five days later, Sukkot, and then right afterwards is Simchat Torah. It's a little bit too crowded with the holidays. So he makes a decision that he's going to move Sukkot forward one month. So Sukkot is going to be one month later. It kind of evens it out a little bit better. And so he made these kind of small changes, and he essentially created his own religion. Um, he's standing, the, um, the, uh, the Book of Kings tells us he's standing, um, offering sacrifices in his new temple on his new holiday that he had created when um, the prophet comes to him and tells him, um, because you have not followed in God's, God's ways, God will destroy you and your family and destroy your kingdom. And um, indeed, Yeravam um, himself was king for a number of years, but then his son was, um, his son was assassinated by, a, um, by his commander-in-chief, whose name was Basha. Anyway, Basha's dynasty lasted for only two generations before he himself was assassinated. And then after a long civil war, um, the, a general called Amri becomes in, is in control of the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom, as you see, is fairly unstable. The southern kingdom, though, remains under the control of the house of David consistently for all this time. The southern kingdom is loyal to God. The northern kingdom is not at this point. Anyway, Amri decides to build himself a new capital outside of Shechem. He builds a city called Samaria, or Shomron, um, right just south of Shechem and uh, in central Israel, and this becomes his new capital. Amri, after Amri's death, his son, he has a son, Ahav. 
Ahav marries the daughter of the um, Zidonite king, whose name is Isabel or Isabel, and um, or, sorry, Jezebel. And um, Jezebel introduces idol worship, particularly the idols of the Baal and the Asherah. She introduces them to the land of Israel. Israel now not only has this monotheistic Jewish-like religion that Yeravam had started that didn't, doesn't appear to have actually been popular among the masses, but actually now has extensive idol worship. Anyway, in the days of um, Ahav's um, dynasty also only lasts a couple generations, and a couple generations later, the prophet Elisha tells the commander-in-chief, whose name is Yehu, that he should kill um, the Ahaziah, who's the um, king at the time, and um, take over, make himself king, and destroy idol worship from northern Israel. Yehu indeed does that. He assassinates the king, kills out the royal family, becomes king, and kills out all the, kills all the um, leaders, the idolatrous leaders, and makes himself king, and, um, and removes idol worship from the land of Israel. However, he doesn't get rid of the religion and the temples that Jeroboam had built. Anyway, Yehu lasts, Yehu's dynasty lasts for a couple generations until his great-grandson, Jeroboam, the second Jeroboam ben Yoash, um, is very successful in battle and he captures nearby countries. And when he captures nearby countries, he is fascinated by their different idols and he decides to bring some of those back with him and he reintroduces idolatry to the land of Israel. So um, God sends the prophet Amos to warn them that he will soon exile these northern ten tribes. Now, after Yeravim's demise, his son is assassinated by a fellow called Shulam ben Yavesh, who is in turn assassinated right afterwards by a fellow called Menachem ben Gadi. Now, during Menachem's days in the northern kingdom, this unstable northern kingdom, there's a growing Assyrian empire. Until this period, and we're talking about the 500s, or 600 BCE, uh, until this period, the Middle East was essentially lots and lots of little kingdoms, lots of small kingdoms. Israel um, was split itself into two kingdoms, and lots of little kingdoms all across the Middle East. Um, around 600 BC, or a little before that, um, the Assyrians, who came from Nineveh, which was um, on the northern Tigris River in northern Iraq today, um, they began to build an empire. In other words, they captured, they conquered all the little kings of Mesopotamia and all the little kingdoms, and they exp extended, expanded pretty far east, all the way into modern-day Iran, and then they expanded <coughs> west into modern-day Turkey, and then they started moving down south. Anyway, they moved, they capture um, Aram. Aram is modern-day Syria. They capture Aram. And then they move on and they capture, they attack northern Israel. Menachem ben Gadi has no choice. He has to pay a very large tribute to the Assyrians. In order to cover the money for that tribute, he institutes very heavy taxes. The high taxes again lead to another tax revolt, um, this time led by a fellow called Pekach ben Remaliahu. And Pekach ben Remaliahu decides that he's going to fend off Assyria so he doesn't have to pay those taxes. He joins forces with the king of Aram, whose name is Rezin, to try to fight off the Assyrians. They rebel from the Assyrians. Anyway, at this point, Tiglath Pileser, who is the Assyrian Empire at the time, then invades <coughs> and annexes parts of northern Israel. 
including where the tribes, where the northernmost tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun are, and he takes them captive in 573 BCE. So this is almost 2,600 years ago. He takes these two tribes captive. Now, the Assyrian Empire, this first major empire in the Middle East, they needed a way to ensure that all these little kingdoms and little tribes didn't rebel against them, and they were able to keep control over all of them. Later, the Persians came up with this brilliant idea that if you build, and the Greeks and Romans did the same, if you build these really good roads and you have fast horses, you could travel and move armies very quickly from place to place and keep control. But before they had good roads, it was hard to move. It could take years to get from one place to the next, to move an army from one place to the next, which essentially made it very, very difficult to retain control over an empire. So the Assyrian Empire's policy was as follows. What they would do is they decided to assimilate all the tribes in the Middle East, in their empires. And so they did that. Whenever they captured a tribe, they moved them from their natural land where they had come from, and they would move them elsewhere and move them around so that everybody was all mixed up. By mixing up all the different tribes, everyone began to speak the national language of Assyria, which was um, Aramaic at the time. And so with time, everybody lost their unique, distinct national identity, and they became Assyrian or Aramaic speakers. So they did the same to these northern tribes, Naphtali and Zulun, which were annexed to the Assyrian Empire, and um, they were taken away and <laughs> mixed in to the rest of the Assyrian Empire. Anyway, some years later, um, there was another rebellion, led this time by the next king, whose name was, uh, there was another rebellion in Israel, um, Hosea ben Ela takes, um, assassinates Menachem, he takes the reins, soon the Assyrians come again, and this time they take the eastern Israel, which is the area of Israel that's east of the Jordan River. And this includes Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, and they move them out of their land into the, um, elsewhere in the Assyrian Empire. Finally, in 555 BCE, Tiglath-Pileser finally captures Samaria and exiles all of the tribes. And this is 133 years before the capture of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So he exiles all these 10 tribes are now sent off into the Assyrian Empire. Meanwhile, as part of this policy of moving nations around, he brings a group from Mesopotamia called Kuthim, and he brings them and settles them in and around the city of Samaria. Later, these people became known as Shomranim, or Samaritans. They end up adapting certain Jewish rules, and um, they have kind of this mix of their pagan Babylonian, their pagan Mesopotamian religion, together with um, a mix of Judaism. So, anyway, the next king of the next king of um, Assyria, the next Assyrian Empire, his name is Sanchereb, and he attempts to further the Assyrian Empire and include also southern Israel, or as it was known then, Judea, under the reigns of the House of David. At the time, the king of the House of David was Chizkiyahu. He gets, Sanchereb gets as far as the gates of Jerusalem. And then, it, um, one of the greatest miracles in our history, Sanchereb's entire army, 185,000 officers, all die in one night at the gates of Jerusalem. With um, 
uh, following this Assyrian defeat, this miraculous Assyrian defeat, Chizkiyahu, the king at the time, extends his reign, not just over southern Israel, but over all of northern Israel, reuniting Israel and becoming now, for the first time since the days of King Solomon, the king over the entire country. However, as we said, 10 of the tribes had been exiled. The people were mostly from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So the question then is, where did those 10 tribes go? That is. Kuthim. Kutim. Uh, they later became known as, because they were settled around the city of Samaria, they became known as Samaritans. Those were not Jews. Those were from Mesopotamia, from a mix of other tribes. They became, Kuth was one of the tribes, the, um, the Book of Kings says. There were a bunch of tribes. They became known as Kutim. That's the way they're always known throughout the Talmud. They were not originally Jewish. They had converted to Judaism um, because um, they were being attacked by lions and they thought that if they convert to Judaism, then they'll stop being attacked. But they retained some of their pagan customs. So they're not consider we don't consider them Jewish. And they're still there. Very, very few of them, yes. There once a lot more of them. But now Hiskiyahu's king over all of Israel, the 10 tribes are gone. So where did they go? So firstly, not all the tribes were taken. When Sancheru moved around tribes, it appears that he only moved around parts of tribes. He didn't move around every single last person. Um, he probably moved the city dwellers or the people in the towns, while the villagers were probably left behind. Um, there's different midrashim. <coughs> one says an eighth of the people remained. One says a tenth of the people remained. In addition, it appears we meet in southern Judah throughout in southern Israel, in Judea, the southern kingdom, we meet members of other tribes as well. So it appears that over the years there was some mixing. In other words, members of other tribes did go to southern Israel, or members of Judah may have gone to north. Remember, southern Israel was very unstable. Uh, sorry, northern Israel was very unstable. So they may have gone to southern Israel. So there probably were members of the other tribes um, under Chizkiyahu's reign when Chizkiyahu united Israel. Where did the rest go? So in the book of Melachim, the book of Kings, it says they were taken to four places. Chala, Chavor, the other side of the Gozan River, and the cities of Madai, or Media. Where are these places? Can I ask you a question? Yes. Since reunited the kingdom and there were remnants there, did he reassign the land so that people now could officially live, people from tribes could go back to their tribal province, as it were. Very good point. After the, after Chizkiyahu expands his kingdom, it appears that Jews from southern Israel moved to northern Israel in great numbers because it was somewhat empty. And um, for the first time, Jews no longer lived on their ancestral land. They did? Or did they, they did not. They did not, they did not anymore, no. Halakhically, shouldn't they? Yes, but most Jews were gone. They didn't. They didn't. So, the, so where are these places? Chala, Chavar, the river Gozen, Madai. So the Talmud describes all these places as being, um, gives names for where all these places are, where Chala is, Chavar is. They appear to both be in Mesopotamia, where the Talmud itself, the Babylonian Talmud itself, was written in Mesopotamia, um, which had a very large Jewish community. Um, 
it describes um, the river Gozan either as being in Syria or being in Iran um, today. Um, Media or Madai, we know, was a city, in, was an area in modern Iran, east of Mesopotamia. Um, the, the, um, the Talmud says that it's around Hamdan. Hamdan was the, is still a town today, in, uh, is a town today in western Iran. And, um, it's, and it was the original capital of Media, which was an um, empire back from biblical times. So this would make sense that where were the Jews exiled to? To either northern Syria, Iraq, Iran, because that would have all been part of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire controlled all these areas. They would have moved the ten tribes around the Assyrian Empire. So the Jerusalem Talmud gives us another list of where they were sent. It says three places. <laughs> it says first they were sent near Antioch. Antioch is, um, there's a couple Antiochs here, but um, the original Antioch is in South Turkey. It's, um, it's where Turkey, um, Syria, and the Mediterranean come together, where the very north um, eastern corner of the Mediterranean is Antioch. It was later the capital of the Seleucid Greek Kingdom. So the Seleucid Greek Kingdom, um, which essentially controlled Syria and uh, much of the Middle East, was based over there in Antioch. Um, so that's where, that's one place the, Talmud mention, the Jerusalem Talmud mentions. Then it says they were beyond the Sambation River and in a place that was covered by clouds. Where is this Sambation River? We don't know where the Sambation River is. The Sam Sorry? Okay. Okay, so the Sambation, this it could be. The Sambation River. Where's the Sambation River? So the Sambation River is mentioned once in the Babylonian Talmud in a discussion between. Rabbi Akiva and the governor of Israel, uh, at the time the Roman governor, Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus was a wicked governor, but he had many discussions with Rabbi Akiva, as we mentioned last week. And one of the questions that Turnus Rufus asked him was um, to show him evidence to keep Shabbat. The Romans were very anti-Shabbat. They couldn't, they couldn't understand this thing that you take a day off every week. Whoever heard of taking a day vacation once a week? It was beyond their comprehension. So they, they had a lot of trouble with the concept of Shabbat. And so Rabbi Akiva points out that the Sambation River, everyone knows, um, flow is very rough for six days and is calm every seventh day on Shabbat. Now that's evidence of Shabbat. Now it was either something that they had both heard about or perhaps something they were both familiar with. If they were both familiar with, it must have been somewhere in the vicinity that they must have known. We don't know for we don't know definitively any river that has such a nature. There's indeed a Midrash that, that describes exactly that, that Israel was exiled across the Sabbatyot River, which is only quiet on Shabbat, and therefore you cannot cross without desecrating the Shabbat, because it's the only day that you can cross, and so you would have to swim on Shabbat in order to get across that river, because you cannot cross on any other day. Um, where are the clouds? Um, where's a place covered by clouds? Presumably mountains. Um, is covered by clouds. Um, there's a lot of mountains out there that it could be. It could be mountains to the north. Um, 
in northern Turkey is very mountainous. Um, it could be mountains to the um, it could be mountains to the east. Um, the Talmud and Midrashim tell us quite a quite a lot about Harei Choshech, the mountains of darkness, and it would appear that those mountains of darkness are the Himalaya or the Hindu Kush mountains, which are mountain ranges that essentially go across India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan today. And um, they're the highest mountain ranges in the world, um, many of which are impassable unless you have special equipment. So in those days were impassable. We know that Alexander, in his attempted conquest of India, tried to cross those mountains and had a lot of trouble. And so um, those are probably the mountains of darkness. Perhaps that is what the Jerusalem Talmud is referring to. We don't know. Anyway, what happened to the, wherever they ended up, what happened to these tribes? So we have conflicting reports about what happened to them. In one place in the Talmud, it tells us that King Yoshiah, one of the last kings of Judah, and now over all of Israel, from the house of David, um, orders a huge restoration of the Holy Temple. And during this restoration, they managed to find a Torah scroll, the original Torah scroll that had been written by Moses, that had always been in the Holy of Holies, but it had disappeared. Why had it disappeared? Because an earlier king, um, a wicked king of Judah called Ahaz, had a um, hobby that he liked to burn Torah scrolls. And so they were afraid he would find this Torah scroll. They had hidden it. And so now in, during this restoration, they managed to find this hidden Torah scroll. They opened it up, and it speak, they opened up to the, one of the last portions of the Torah, Nitzavim, where it speaks of the destruction and exile of Israel. And so they take this as a bad omen, and they go to the prophetess Chulda and ask her what that means. And she says, that means that indeed that God is going to soon destroy Israel. And Jerusalem is soon going to be captured, and you will all be taken to exile. So the Talmud asks, why did they go to the prophetess Chulda? Why didn't they go to the better known prophet at the time, Jeremiah? And the Talmud says, well, Jeremiah wasn't there. Where was he? He had gone to bring back the ten lost tribes. He brought them back to Israel, which makes sense because once the Assyrian Empire had fallen, by the days of King Yoshiah, the Assyrian Empire had fallen, the ten tribes had the option of moving back. They were no longer stuck in Assyria. They had the option to move back to Israel. Likely they did. And he may have gone there to encourage them not to stay where they are, but to move back to Israel. Now, elsewhere in the Talmud, the Talmud debates whether they would ever come back. Rabbi Akiva, who is known for his great love of Israel, says the ten lost tribes will never come back. They are assimilated. They, have ne they will never come back. Remember, at the time of their exile, they were mostly idolaters. They weren't, many of them didn't, weren't keeping Ju Judaism anymore. So um, Rabbi Akiva says they will never come back. There are other views that say, indeed, they will come back. We will find them, and they will be returned to, um, they will be returned to Israel. The Talmud points out that Rabbi Akiva lost his piety in this discussion. Usually Rabbi Akiva is known as the lover of Israel. And here he says the ten tribes will never come back. So how, how many generations have they been away at this point? In the days of Rabbi Akiva? Um, no. King Yoshiahu, um, not very long. The, the temple was destroyed 133 years after the final exile of the 10 tribes. And King Yoshiahu was a couple years before, so about 100 years. 
which is long but relevant. I mean, we're in the United States for a little over 100 years, most of us. So, so what happened to the Ted Lost tribe? So there are a couple different possibilities we could just summarize, and it's possible that it's a mix of these possibilities. Firstly, some of them stayed in Israel. We know that. They may have come back, or at least some of them may have come back, also possible. Now, 133 years later, these 10 tribes, we don't know exactly where they went. Presumably, they were somewhere in the Assyrian Empire. 133 years later, Ju Judah itself is destroyed by the Babylonians, and all the people of Judah are exiled to the Assyrian Empire, to the Babylonian Empire, most of which settle around the town of Nahardaa, um, modern-day Fallujah in Iraq, and that becomes and that becomes the Jewish center, and Jews have an autonomous state over there for well over a thousand years. That is the center of Jewish life, at least until the Arab conquest. And so, um, so most Jews end up there. Jews spread out throughout the Babylonian Empire, across Iraq, Syria, um, Iran, and beyond at this point. And so chances are they now meet all of their 10 lost tribes, and they may have assimilated them with the tribes that were exiled later. Also possible, they were assimilated outside of the Jewish people, either immediately, in other words, they were totally assimilated, um, either immediately they assimilated or gradually with time they assimilated. Indeed, the Talmud suggests that every non-Jew in their area, in other words, in the area of um, in the, in the area of Babylonia, Mesopotamia, where they lived, um, could be a descent of the Ten Lost Tribes that might really be Jewish. Could be. Um, but they may be Jewish. The Talmud gives that, gives that suggestion that their non-Jewish neighbors may actually be Jewish. It is also possible... Now, these are just some of the different possibilities, and again, it could be a mix of everything. It is also possible, the Midrash says in one place, that they did not have any descendants, that they died out. Some tribes just die out, they disappear. Um, now, it is also possible that they retained an independent Jewish identity, but lost much of Judaism since they were idolaters. Um, and they have some Jewish traditions, and they kind of have other religions with some slight Jewish traditions. Um, it's also possible that they are God-fearing religious Jews living somewhere out there under the radar, and nobody knows where they are also a possibility. Anyway, over the years, um, if any of the early possibilities are true, either that they came back, they mixed into the Jewish people, or they totally assimilated, or they had no children, we're never going to find them. If the last two possibilities are true, at least for some of them, that they retained an independent Jewish identity but lost their Judaism, possibly we can find them and identify them. Religious Jews living somewhere under the radar, we may find them somewhere. So over the years, many people claim to have found them. Now, the, the Christian Bible includes a bunch of books known as Apocrypha, which, Apocrypha, which is, um, or in Hebrew we call them Svarim Chitzoniim, which are essentially Jewish or Jewish Hellenist books that were written during the Second Temple period that are not part of Tanakh, but they're books from that period that were thrown in, lumped into the Christian Bible together with all their other books. But they were originally Jewish in their origin and written by Jews, either Jews, either 
are either traditional Jews or Greek-speaking Jews, which are Hellenist Jews, but um, they were Jewish in origin. And we have some of the books we have the original Hebrew for, like a book, books like Ben Sira. Some of them were probably originally written in Greek, and we only have them in Greek or Latin. So now some of those actually speak about the Ten Tribes. And there's one book called the Book of Tobias, or in Hebrew, Tuvia, which is about a fellow called Tuvia, who was a member of the tribe of Naphtali, living as one of the ten tribes out in Mesopotamia. So in, whenever this book was written in uh, early Second Temple period, maybe 200, 200 years after the, the original, uh, after the exile of the ten tribes, uh, at least in this book's view, um, these tribes still retained their Jewish identity and were God-fearing. Um, also in this book called Ezra 4 that mentions the ten tribes. So there are other books um, that do from that period that do mention the ten tribes. Now were they myths that they created or were they talking about reality? We don't really know. Right? It's possible. Anyway, the Talmud benches, as we said, in Midrasha mentioned the ten tribes. A number of um, interesting tales about the ten tribes. But we never managed to really identify them. Now, in the 800s, in the 800s, one of the largest Jewish communities in the world was in the town of Kirwan. Kirwan is a town in Tunisia, which was at the time one of the largest cities in the world. It was a center of Islamic learning. This is when Islam was very modern, moderate, and uh, open-minded, and great and um, great and a great and all the great centers of study and so Kirwan was a great center of learning and a great center of trade and it had a very very large Jewish community it was destroyed not long after that um, so and so the Jewish community anyway a fellow turns up in Kirwan his name is Eldad Hadani Eldad from the tribe of Dan and he says that he's coming from a place around south of Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia maybe today, a place south of Ethiopia where um, there is a, where the 10 tribes are found, at least some of the 10 tribes are found. And his brother is the king of, the, of their tribe, of the tribe of Dan, and they're God-fearing Jews. They have the written Torah. They have the books of scripture only until the point of the exile of the tribes, of course. They have oral traditions, although they have slight variations in their oral Torah from our oral Torah. They don't know anything about the Talmud. They never heard of it. They never heard of any of our, any of our other books that were written later. He speaks a fluent Hebrew, this Eldad Hadani, and he is um, coming to bring regards from these, um, from these other tribes. Anyway, the Jews of Kirwan don't know what to make of this. Eldad can trace his lineage all the way back to Dan, all the way back to the tribe of Dan, which he claims actually was not exiled by the Assyrians, but left Israel prior to the Assyrian exile in order to get away from the idol worship um, of the northern kingdoms. And he says near him are all the other tribes, some of them living in Ethiopia, um, Somalia area, some of them living across the Red Sea. There was always a lot of trade back and forth between Somalia, Ethiopia, and the Arabian Peninsula. They're very close to each other, just across a narrow sea. So, and then across in Arabia, there were other tribes as well. 
Anyway, this is his tale. And so um, they don't know what to make of that. So the Jews of Kirwan, at the time Judaism was centered in, um, in Mesopotamia, where most Jews lived, it was the largest, most powerful community. The great yeshivas were in Mesopotamia, led by, led by the Gaonim. And so maybe we could do a class on the great yeshivas of Mesopotamia, um, great Babylonian yeshivas. So, the, um, so they write a letter to, then any bright child was sent off to um, Mesopotamia to study. The yeshiva at this, by this point were in Baghdad. And um, so they sent off a letter to the great Rav Tzemach Gaon, um, who's the leader of, spiritual leader of Jews in Mesopotamia, and by extent, the spiritual leader of Jews in the world. And they ask him, what should we make of this fellow? Should we take him seriously? Should we not? He, has, he says some of our traditions, of our oral traditions, are mistaken. He has some differences in the oral tradition. So... So Rav Tzemach Gaon responds and says, well, he's probably telling the truth because his claims fit with our tradition about the ten lost tribes. So his claims fit with our tradition about the ten lost tribes, except he maybe he messed up some details in his long journey. So don't trust his memory. Maybe the things that he says of his tradition that are different to ours, he may have messed those up. We don't, wor don't worry about that. Anyway, but he does take him seriously. Now, could the Ten Lost Tribes have ended up in Arabia and Mesopotamia? Possibly. Uh, and uh, Ethiopia? Possibly. They were never part of the Assyrian Empire, though. How they would have gotten there would be a mystery. But um, possibly they could have ended up there. Anyway, fast forward a couple hundred years. Eldad Hadani wrote a book. He, he wrote a book called Eldad Hadani that we still have today. And he, the book of Eldad Hadani is, um, <laughs> tells his story and about these tribes. It's not a very, it's about 10 pages. And uh, we could, you could still get it today. I'm sure it's translated. Um, the letters of the Gaonim are translated as well, including this famous letter of Rav Tzemach Gaon. Yes. Go ask Irma. Irma's going to give you, okay, Irma? Fast forward now. Fast forward now a few hundred years. It's now, it's now the 1100s, and um, there's a fellow from Spain whose name is Benjamin of Toledo. Now Benjamin of Toledo is um, like Marco Polo of old, except a Jewish Marco Polo, and about the same time in the 1100s. And Benjamin travels throughout the world, starting in Spain, crossing through most of Europe, the Middle East, making it, um, uh, making it all the way as far as India, travels all across the world and writes about all his travels in very, very great detail. And it's our best record of Jewish life and general life across the civilized world from that period. Benjamin of Toledo, makes it to the Arabian Peninsula. Over there in the Arabian Peninsula, there are Jewish tribes. Mohammed, by the way, in the Quran, mentions Jewish tribes as well, some of which he destroys. 
um, and forcibly converts to Islam, but there are Jewish tribes in Arabia, and uh, they would have then been, most people in Arabia at the time were nomadic tribes, Bedouin tribes. There were Jewish Bedouin tribes. And he mentions also the Jews of Yemen. He meets these Jews in Yemen who are somewhat cut off from the rest of the Jewish community. They're different. They have different customs and traditions than most Jews. And in Benjamin, Benjamin of Toledo's belief is that these Yemenite Jews are part of the ten lost tribes. That's where they came from. They are part of the ten lost tribes. Now today, Yemenite Jews do not believe they're part of the ten lost tribes um, at all. The ten, the, although they were somewhat cut off from the Jewish community, they were always in contact with the Jewish community in Mesopotamia. They had the Talmud. They were in contact. They had most Jewish works that were printed over the years or published over the years. And although they were somewhat cut off, they were never fully cut off from the Jewish community. Although their customs vary, Mendel, Mendel, I need you to stop. Although they're, I don't know what, Mendel, what do you want? Okay, so to continue, so anyway, um, then continuing on, so, um, so, so they may have been, the Yemenites may have been from the Ten Lost Tribes, they, they themselves were never fully cut off from the Jewish people, nor do they believe they were from the Ten Lost Tribes. Um, now, in 1524, fast forward a couple hundred years more, there's a fellow called David Haruveni, David of the Reubenite. And David the Reubenite shows up in Egypt and he speaks Hebrew, but it's a little different than the Hebrew that we know. He speaks Arabic too. He says he's from Arabia. He's from the um, 10 tribes and he's from the tribe of Reuben. And he's from the tribe of Reuben and David David the Reubenite tells the Egyptian community he needs their help in raising an army to, um, he needs their help in raising an army to help capture Israel um, together with the army of the 10 tribes that are found in Arabia and in Ethiopia. He says he's the brother of the king of um, the 10 tribes and they're ready to bring them Mashiach and capture Israel and rebuild the temple. Anyway, the Egyptian community doesn't pay much attention to this fellow. He moves on. He goes on to Italy where he tries his luck. He comes to Rome. And in Rome, he meets with Pope Clement VII. And pope, the pope receives him very warmly. And he asks the pope to send European Christian troops. And together, this is, remember, um, after a couple hundred years after the Crusades, Together they will capture Jerusalem. The Jews from the Hebrews from the ten tribes will come from the east, and the Christians will come from the west. And together they will capture Jerusalem, and they will bring the Messiah, and um, uh, for, and they will capture Jerusalem from the Ottoman Empire that had recently captured it. Anyway, Pope Clement is very excited about this idea and treats him royally as they royal member of the ten tribes of Israel. The only problem is the Pope doesn't have his own army. <coughs> so the Pope sends him to Portugal and asks the kid to ask the king of Portugal to send um, to, um, to help out this fellow. 
So David Haruveni, with many followers, takes a ship. He's collected a lot of money by now. A lot of Jews and non-Jews give him gifts. And he takes a ship, and he moves on to Portugal. And over there, he meets with the king of Portugal, who is also very excited about the opportunity to capture Jerusalem, together with these 10 tribes in Arabia and, and Ethiopia, very, very strong, powerful tribes, the way David Aruveni describes them. And um, the Portugal itself at the time is, and he stays for a while in Portugal. Portugal at the time is full of conversos, Jews that had converted to, Judea, to Christianity. Um, just, um, this is um, the early 1500s. This is just 50 years after they had just converted to Christianity and or less. And so many of them are very excited. And um, the Inquisition is out of a job. And because uh, the Christians don't dare touch the Jews, now they know the Messiah is coming. And many, um, many Jews that had conversos openly embraced Judaism, um, particularly one, um, one uh, very wealthy converso whose name was Shlomo Malcho, who becomes a great follower of David Aruveni and travels around Spain and Portugal to encourage Jews to return back to Judaism. And thousands and thousands of Jews go back to Judaism. Anyway, meanwhile, there's David Haruveni continues traveling across, across Europe, collecting support from different Christian um, kings and emperors for his campaign um, uh, against Jerusalem to, to aid the ten tribes in their conquest of Jerusalem from the Ottomans. Anyway, David Aravani eventually... Um, the, at, No. So, but he's very successful. So, so but anyway, at a certain point, um, at a certain point, the Christians started getting nervous about this guy. Too many Jews that had converted to Christianity were moving back to Judaism, and so at a certain point, he's now in um, southern France, um, where the um, under the reign of what was then the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, the late of the, the emperors of, of Austria and uh, over there he is arrested and he's sent back to Portugal and uh, over there his um, dream of, of freeing Jerusalem ends up, he ends up, uh, ends up falling apart um, he ends up dying in prison meanwhile his main follower Shlomo Molcho who had traveled across Europe across particularly Spain and Portugal encouraging conversos to um, to go back to Judaism is eventually arrested too, and he himself is burned by the Inquisition. So together with many of his followers. So where, where David Aravani came from, we don't know. Whether his story was true, we don't know. Perhaps he was a Yemenite Jew. Um, perhaps he was an Egyptian Jew. We don't know where he came from or how he came. Anyway, moving forward, Jews had been exiled from Spain they had spread across the Mediterranean, but most, many of the wealthy Jews of Spain moved to Holland. Holland at the time had just declared its independence from Spain and was an, now an independent, a, a, had become a republic um, just around this time. And so many, many Jews had already had business interests because Holland had been part of Spain. Many Jews moved to Holland and Amsterdam has a very, very large Jewish Spartan community, very successful community. Their rabbi is Menashe ben Israel. This is in the 1600s. And Menashe ben Israel 
gets reports from Jews who had gone to visit the New World, the New World, the Dutch West Indies, and they had found, they had traveled the New World, and they had found that the Indian tribes over there speak Hebrew. Not only do they speak Hebrew, the Indian tribes know the Shema, and they have many Jewish customs. They tear their clothing in mourning, which is apparently true, just as Jews do, and they bury their dead like Jews do, and they look like Jews, and there's a lot of evidence that the there's a lot of ev evidence that the Native Americans must be Jewish. They must be the ten lost tribes. How they ever got from the Assyrian Empire to the Americas, we don't know, but they must be members of the ten lost tribes. Menashe ben Israel is very excited about that, and he believes that finding the ten lost tribes will be a sign that Moshiach is coming very soon. Um, and uh, he believed and wrote a book, Mikdei Yisrael, Hope of Israel, where he believes that finding the ten lost tribes means that Mashiach will be coming very soon. He even encouraged Jews, um, many Jews in Holland at the time, who were, had just then built the Dutch West Indie Company, it was a Jewish company, and the first public corporation. Um, slave traders. Slave traders. Um, were, were Jews, and he encouraged Jews to move to the... Um, he encourages Jews to move to the modern world, to move to, um, to move to the Americas. And indeed, that's how the first Jews come to New York. Jews, from, Jews that are expelled from Brazil by the Inquisition end up in New York. And while Stuyvesant, who was the governor at the time, refuses the Jews, to allow the Jews to land, the Dutch West Indies Company from Amsterdam, who, which is controlled by Jews, instructs him to allow, because it was essentially a private city, privately owned, at the time, as instructs him to let them land in New Amsterdam, which is New York today. So anyway, Menashe ben Israel, at the time, Jews were also trading. Jews in Holland, who were great traders, were trading with England as well. But Jews were not allowed to live in England since the 1200s. Jews had been expelled from England. And so Menashe ben Israel um, travels to England, and this is right after the um, revolution, and Oliver Cromwell is right now the um, president and um, he addresses the parliament and he tells the parliament of um, he tells the parliament of England that since the ten lost tribes have been found in America it is time for Moshiach to come for the Messiah to come remember they were Puritans and believers that the Messiah was coming very soon and so but there's only one problem Israel has to be scattered to the four corners of the earth now England is in the corner. It's the corner of the Asian European continent. So it's, it's in the northwest corner. It's a corner. So Israel is not yet in one of the corners. Mashiach cannot come until there are Jews in England. So based on his speech before Parliament, which we have the transcript, um, the Parliament voted to allow Jews to move to settle in England. And as a result, Jews from then on were able to settle in England. This is in 1665. Now, where is it predicted that the Jews have to be in the four corners? It says the Jews are going to be gathered from the four corners of the earth. Um, it says in the Torah itself, it says. Yes, from the four corners. Ma'abrakan fotaharit, from the four corners of the earth. What are, so, what are all four corners? 
The, the earth is a sphere. It has no corners by definition. But that was what he said. It worked. It worked. Parliament believed it. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, so where are the ten lost tribes today? Many people have been looking for them in the years since. Jews have looked for them. Christians have looked for them. People have been fascinated by them. Some suggested that the river Gozan, which is mentioned in the Book of Kings, is actually the Ganges River in India and has a similar sound. And so we know that in India, in the city of Cochin, there was in... Um, there was an ancient, in southern India, there was an ancient Jewish community, a very old Jewish community. Where that Jewish community came from, we don't know for certain. Um, historians think that they came from the Yemenite community. Yemen's not that far from India, just across the Persian Gulf, um, not that far from southern India. Um, but there were those that thought maybe the Cochin Jewish community came from the ten lost tribes that were originally there in India. Um, most probably they were regular Jews, but we don't know. Um, regardless, when Persian Jews settled, began, began to settle in India in the 17 and 1800s um, in very large numbers, and many Jews came to Cochin, um, the Persian Jews, the Persian and Iraqi Jews, refused to mix with the original Cochin Jews. They were known as white Jews and black Jews because the Cochin Jews were a little darker, more Indian-looking, um, probably of Yemenite descent than the Iranian uh, Iraqi Jews. Um, they, didn't, they didn't mix for many years, but almost certainly the Cochin Jews were traditional Jews. Um, so, there were, so there are these remote Jewish communities, maybe part of the Penlos tribes, possibly. Then there's also the possibility, as we said, that the tribes retain some sort of tribal identity and maybe some sort of Jewish tradition, but no longer keep Judaism. And so men, there are many, many groups today that claim Jewish background. 